Amen. Amen. That's awesome. Um, hey, Leighton, grateful for you, man. I know you can hear me. And uh, what a great little lesson. Like, what does it mean to say our next yes to God uh, as enthusiastically as Leighton did this morning? I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet again. And uh, we're going to give attention to our passage as we continue our study of the book of James. And today we're turning into chapter five, which is the very final chapter in our letter. So we'll be in it for the next month. And uh, today we're in verses one through six, James chapter five, verses one through six. This is God's word to you today. Look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-ridden rags. Your gold and your silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You fatten yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. God's word to you today. You can be seated. All right, let's just acknowledge this is a hard-hitting passage. Uh, And that doesn't surprise us as we've been walking through the book of James, which is a letter from the pastor James, uh, the brother of Jesus, to his congregation in Jerusalem. And for those of you who might be joining us for the first time or if you're watching online, as we've been journeying through this letter, we've learned a lot about James and his personality and his style. And as we head into chapter five, maybe he's saved the best for last. This indeed is a hard hitting passage and it mirrors the passage that we covered last week. And if you missed, or just by way of review, as we finish chapter four, uh, James began uh, this, this passage in chapter four that we reviewed last week with the same two words. And if you have your scriptures, uh, open them with me to the end of chapter four, beginning of chapter five, or uh, turn them on on your phones. And these two passages last week and this week are held together with two words. What are they? Look here. Look here, James wants to get our attention. If we don't uh, have, uh, if he doesn't have our attention yet, he wants to get our attention now as he finishes the letter. So he uses a different turn signal, a verbal turn signal. Uh, All the way throughout his letter, he's been using the turn signal of dear brothers and sisters to start a new thought. So if you go back and study the letter, which I hope you are studying along um, as a family, as a group, individually, you'll notice that turn signal that he's giving to introduce a new thought throughout his letter, dear brothers and sisters. But at the end of chapter four and in our passage today, the first six verses of chapter five, he uses the two words, look here. And there's a call to attention, again, an, an urgency that he's speaking with. Some of you know that James was martyred for his faith about the same time that the apostle Paul was martyred in Rome. James is martyred in Jerusalem. And so perhaps James knows that this might be some of his final words to the congregation that has been scattered outside of Palestine and that he loves so much. 
and he wants to help them to know how to get through what they're going through. So he calls them to attention. Some of you know that uh, I have the privilege of serving as a chaplain in the Air Force, and I have for eight years. And I made major this summer, so you can just think about that. So for those of you who have always considered me to be a major pain, uh, the government agrees with you now. The government agrees with you. When I showed up for officer training school, I was you know, civilian, never been in a military environment. I showed up in shorts and a t-shirt at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama uh, during the summer. And I asked, like, is there, a, is there a welcome dinner? I walked in and said, is there a welcome dinner? Is there some sort of orientation or like a fire or something we're going to have tonight? Just, just share a little bit. And I was greeted with a call to attention and lots of choice words and spitting and yelling and urgency for me to do push-ups and to uh, remember that I was in a different world and environment. And James is calling us here with these two words, look here, to remember that we're in a different environment and that we're living in a world that wants us to believe a different story than what God is saying to us. And so there's this call to attention. There's this urgency in the words. And so I want to encourage you the next few minutes to kind of sit up and lean in and listen to the words that James is giving to us here as he knows that these might be some of his final words to the congregation that he loves so much about how to get through what they're going through. You know, when you go to the doctor and you get a checkup, they oftentimes will take your weight and your height, your blood pressure, you know, just kind of look at you and, and the first things to just sort of see how you're doing and are you healthy? And James says, look at these things first if you wanna know what story you're believing about yourself and God and other people. He says, start here or look here. And again, just by way of review, look at the end of chapter four. He says, look here in verse 13, chapter four. If you have your scriptures open or you have your phone or you're taking some notes, just underline that, look here. And then as he begins chapter five, he begins the same two words that hold the passage together, look here. And what are the two things that James calls us to look at first? What are we meant to look at to know what story we're believing about God and ourselves and other people and how to get through what we're going through? how to take a real faith and a real Jesus and apply it in a real world full of real problems and difficulties. He says, first of all, look here at your what? At your plans. Chapter four, verses 13 through 17. Look here at your plans. Let me just remind you of what he says, just the first couple of verses. He says, look here, verse 13, chapter four. You who say today or tomorrow, we're gonna go to a certain town and we're gonna stay there a year. And we'll do business there and we'll make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Let me just stop there. And Nick did a great job unpacking this passage last week and calling our attention to look here at the way that we plan in our lives. Now, is planning wrong? No. What James says is when you're planning without any care or concern about God, it turns into evil because you're participating in the story of the world that says you are your own, that you're in charge of your life. L listen to the certainty in verse 13. Today or tomorrow, we'll go to this certain town and we're gonna start a business there and we'll stay there for one year and we're going to make 
a prophet. The certainty with which we speak of about our lives and our plans. Have you ever heard yourself speaking that way? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do this. And James calls the question on each and every one of us, verse 14, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? What do you really know? What are you really certain of? If someone asked you, what do you really know about God, about yourself, about other people? What are you really certain about in your life? Well, it's far fewer things than we would like to admit. Our life is not our own. But oftentimes when it comes to our plans, James says, look here, look at the way you talk about your future. Look at the way you talk about your life. Look at the way you plan. It's going to show what you believe. And many of us become atheists when we plan. We act as if there is no God. And James says it's calling to attention that you believe that life is about you and that you actually have the power to plan your life in that way. Some of you learned these 10 little words that got you on this path of believing that your life is your own and that you have certainty about your tomorrow and the tomorrows of other people. The 10 little words are these. If it is to be, some of you learned it from a young age, it is up to me. And with those words, we learn to take control of our lives and to begin to plan everything that we're going to do. We're going to go to this town. We're going to start a business. We're going to stay for a year. We're going to make a profit. And James says, your life could be over with tonight. What are you talking about? And instead he teaches us, if you go to read the rest of the passage, as James warns us about our plans, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, this is what we'll do. So in other words, it's okay to have plans and dreams about your life, but all of them have to come under the authority of God. You know, guys, we're one little float in God's providential parade of humanity. And if you think about the world from beginning to end, God sees it all. And you think about it like a, like a float coming through the town that you grew up in and, or a parade, and we're one float in the parade. But many of us believe that the whole parade is about us. And that we actually have volition and choice about where the parade is going. And that we can determine all those things. That we have certainty and clarity. And the reality is most of us can only see one float ahead of where we are. Maybe two. If you can see two, you call yourself a visionary. Maybe you can see one float behind you historically in your family. Or, or maybe two and you think you're a historian. But the reality is, is there's many, many floats. But it's one parade of providence. And God sees the whole parade from start to finish and the middle, right where you are. And so James says, this is going somewhere. God's in control of his parade of providence. And if you think you can determine your tomorrow, it's showing what you believe about God and yourself. So pay attention to that and the plans that you're making. I want you to pay attention to something else. Look at verse 14, James 4. As he begins to speak about this certainty, then in the end of 13 as well, he says, we're going to go to this town, we're going to stay there a year, we're going to do business, and we're going to what? The end of verse 13. We're going to make a profit. And this is, this is key as we get into our passage today in chapter 5. We're going to make money. And that money is going to allow us more freedom, according to the story of the world, 
to make more plans about our future, to have even more control over our lives and our story. And so this is the way it goes. I'm going to make plans to go make a profit, and those profits allow me to have more opportunities to do what? To make more plans about my future so I can make more of a profit so that I can make more plans. And on and on and on it goes, round and round and round. And this is the carousel of the story of the world. And many of us, as we look at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five and James, are right on that carousel. A carousel of addiction in many ways and dysfunction and consumerism, one that goes round and round and round. My life is my own. I'm going to make a profit so that my life can be even more of my own. And the more wealth I have, the more freedom I think I have. And the more freedom I think I have, the more I think that I have to get more wealth. And on and on and on it goes. Anybody with me? You know, I tell my kids when we go to any kind of amusement park, you know, we've been to Disney, we've you know, care ones many times, I'll get on anything right? And I love the up and down and all around. I'll get on anything. There's only one thing I won't get on. It's the ones that go round and round. You know, Dumbo and all that stuff. To me, those are the scariest rides in any of the parts, just the ones that go round and round. There's balloons at Carowinds, right? That will ruin the day. I'll be, I'll be done. And I know I'm getting older and there's something in your ear and whatever. I can't do it anymore. It's scary, right? It makes me sick. And some of you today sitting in here and some of you listening online, the reality is, is James calls our attention by saying, look here at the way you think about your life and your tomorrow and the way you plan. And the goal of all that being money, look at it. It's making you sick. And you're participating in a story that God never created for you. Now, here's the deal. The ultimate reveal of our will What's inside of us, the story that we're believing, the way we make choices. How do you make choices? How do you make decisions in your life? What guides your will? What guides your will is the story you're believing about God and yourself and other people. And the ultimate reveal of your will is crisis. And you've heard me say it, and I'm going to say it a hundred more times. You're either in a crisis, you're coming out of a crisis, you're getting ready to go into a crisis. That's the story of this broken world. Jesus said it this way, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus said, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the story of the world. But make no mistake, in this world you're in a crisis and some of you are right now. And this hour of worship together and hearing God's word is your one reprieve from the crisis that you're in. Some of you are getting ready to go into a crisis and you don't even know it. Some of you are just beginning to come out of a crisis and you're praying that God gives you time before the next one. Crisis reveals our will. It it reveals the story that you're believing about God and yourself and other people. It's like a tube of toothpaste. It squeezes the tube of toothpaste and what happens? What's inside comes out. And James says, look here, watch this. Pay attention. If you want to know what story you're believing, God's story or the enemy's story, pay attention to how you respond in crisis, particularly the way you plan and talk about the future, James 4, 13 through 17. And what else? The passage we heard today, James 5, 1 through 6. 
your wealth. The very thing that James mentions in verse 13, chapter four, that we're gonna go make a profit. In other words, we're gonna accumulate wealth so that we can do what? So we can make more plans and act like we're in charge of our lives. And these are hard hitting words in chapter five, aren't they? He says, look here, look at your plans and look at your money and how you treat those. Now James here, I wanna be clear. James is proclaiming the worthlessness of riches. He's not proclaiming and talking about the worthlessness of the rich. In fact, he loves people, his congregation, and a broader audience that's listening into this. And I believe, by the way, that the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five is written to an even broader audience beyond the church. And he loves people too much to let them believe a false story of consumerism. So this is not a simple condemnation of wealth, but rather a condemnation of those who abuse their wealth. It's not wrong to have money and possessions. It is wrong for your possessions to possess you. There's a difference. It's not wrong to have wealth and to be a steward of that wealth and to leverage it for God's kingdom. I believe God gives wealth to people. He gives riches to people, right? So that they can use it for the kingdom and be good stewards of all those things. Not just money, but their time and their influence, their social circles, all the different things, their intellect, their gifts. God uses all of those to advance his kingdom. But when we think that they belong to us, now we're in trouble. And our identity gets wrapped into my plans and my wealth. Pay attention to the language here. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 16 about a poor man, a beggar named Lazarus. And Lazarus sat at the city gate every day, year after year, begging for money. And Jesus describes in vivid detail the condition of his life physically. And then he describes a rich man that passed him every day, that accumulated all sorts of wealth and certainly had choice over all kinds of plans and opportunities in his life who passed him by and didn't give him the time of day. And he says in the judgment, at the end of time, the rich man spends eternity in hell, a real place separated from God. And Lazarus is in the kingdom with God. And the rich man calls out to Lazarus to comfort him. And what strikes me about that story and the reason why I tell it is because the rich man is nameless in the story. Now, does he have a name? Yes, of course. But at the end of his life, he's only known as the rich man. And Lazarus is given the dignity of being called by his name. You see, it became an identity for the rich man. His wealth and the opportunities and the plans that that afforded him became became something that consumed him and possessed him. So look at verse 1, chapter 5. James says, you should weep and mourn what's coming ahead of you. Those of you who have put in your your stock and your your faith and your wealth and your possessions, he says, I grieve for you and you should grieve. Now, what's interesting is when he says, watch this, you know, pay attention to this, look out for this, and he starts with your plans. And then when he begins to speak prophetically, and these are prophetic words that he's given, it's a warning. He begins to talk about what is what? Ahead of you. 
you think what's ahead of you are more opportunities to make more profits and accumulate more wealth. And that somehow what you've accumulated in this life, this short little life that we have, is going to protect you in eternity. And he says, I weep for you and you should groan and weep. Pay attention to the language here. Look at verse 1. You should groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. James is trying to warn the rich that are putting their faith in their riches that it won't save you in the end. This is a posture towards wealth. Don't you see this? This is a posture towards wealth that is antithetical to the posture that we're meant to have in God's story in the kingdom. And again, it's ironic as he talks about what's ahead right? That the very thing that you think you have control over because of your wealth is actually going to condemn you in the end. It's what's ahead of you. And there is the weight of wealth. Don't you feel, feel it here in chapter, chapter 5 verse 1? There's a weight that comes with wealth. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 19, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It mean, does it mean that rich people can't go to heaven? No. It means that when I'm putting my stock and my faith and my riches, it's very difficult to know I need Jesus. I use my wealth and my ability to plan to insulate me from any kind of harm, to mitigate all kinds of risk, including spiritually. And I think that in the end, my wealth and my good works will save me. And there's a warning here. This language is strong Again, it's prophetic, just like an Old Testament prophet that's speaking about what is to come. It's reminding us about the pitfalls of wealth, and we should hear that in a wealthy culture. Is it wrong to have wealth? 1 Timothy 6, no, it's not. But uh, Paul tells Timothy, you should warn the rich about the pitfalls of having wealth and to use their wealth from a kingdom story and not their own story. So easy. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, your wealth is rotting away. Again, the vividness of the language here. It reminds me of manna. You know, God gave the people of God manna on the journey from from Egypt to the promised land to sustain them. And every morning they would collect these flakes of, of manna. And the word manna in Hebrew literally means what is it? So they had, they didn't know, they'd never seen anything like it. What's for dinner? What is it? What's for breakfast? You guessed it. What is it? Every day, over and over and over again. But you know what the people started to do? We're going to take the manna and we're going to put it in jars. Why? Because maybe God won't be faithful tomorrow. And God allowed it to rot and it, and it began to uh, create a stench in the tents and all throughout the camp to where they had to throw out anything that they tried to hoard and save. Because what was in their heart was not proper planning. What was in their heart was we're questioning the faithfulness of God. That God will be with us and God will provide for us. James says your wealth is rotting away just like that manna. Your silver and your gold are corroded. The very things that you're counting on, that you're hoarding together, are destroying your lives. Now pay attention to this. That this is what sin is and what it does to us, friends. Sin makes us crave the very things that are killing us. The very things that we believe are going to give us life, that somehow are going to protect us are the very things that end up taking our life, being corroded, rotting away, and they testify against us. 
stored up wealth for selfish gain is exhibit A when we stand before the Lord and give an account for the way we used our lives. Our time, our talent, our treasure, our influence, every bit of it. Exhibit A will be all these unspent things that God gave to us that we hoarded up to insulate ourselves. So the key question, and I want you to hear this. The key question as we think about the parade of providence and our little float that we're on together in this part of God's parade. What time is it? In other words, what point in the larger story do you believe we're living in? In God's true story, we're close to the end, I believe. His kingdom has already broken into darkness. And God is busy sharing his message of redemption to all of the world. And the Bible says the end will come when everyone's had an opportunity, when the gospel's been preached in that way. So the question is, what time is it? And when we store up our wealth and our influence and our time to live as if our lives are the only uh, float in the parade, that we're the only ones that are meant to be secure, we're living our lives as if they'll go on forever and everything will continue the ways and the way that they are, we're forgetting what time it is in God's kingdom. Jesus said, the way of the world, the story of the world is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow will die. In other words, not a concern at all for other people and the story of God and the story that we find ourselves in. We don't know the hour or the time of God's return, but we're given different signs to look for. The world is getting darker and darker and darker. And the light of Jesus and the hope of the gospel is meant to shine brighter and brighter and brighter through each of our lives. And the church, just to say, the church is broken as the church is. Our church is broken. Every church is broken. Why is the church broken? Because people are broken. And the church isn't a building or a sign or an institution. The church is a people. And at the end of all of this, that's what will remain, our people standing before the Lord. And we'll give an account for our actions. And we'll give an account for how we stewarded our lives. And how we, God was able to use our lives to share the gospel and share the light in an ever-darkening world. God's people are God's plan to share God's purpose with all people. That's why we're here. And yes, you're given a vocation, and yes, you're given skills, and yes, you're given a family that you were born into and a time and a place and all of those things that make you, you, your personality, all of these things. But at the end of the day, all of our purposes, the reason why we're here are wrapped up in God's purpose. And you'll never know God's plan for your life unless you know God's purpose for all of life. And God's purpose for all of life is that every man, woman, and child would have the chance to know him through a personal relationship with Christ. And we, we are God's plan A to share God's purpose with all people. And so all of our small lowercase stories are wrapped up in this bigger story that God is telling all of humanity. So the question is, what time is it? Look at verse four, we'll finish here. Verses four, five, and six. Verse four, uh, James says, listen, right? For listen and hear, interesting language. 
Circle the word listen and circle the word hear. What's the difference between listening and hearing? Why did he use two words, listen and hear? Because we hear a lot of things. But how much do we listen? A lot of noise in the world. Loud story that the world is telling each of you that you're just a consumer. You're nothing more than a consumer that's here to accumulate everything you can and be as merry as you can and enjoy everything that you can. Eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. Lots of noise that the world is telling you about who you are. And James says, can you listen above the noise? Can you listen to people and their cries? In other words, can you listen to vulnerable people, specifically people that are being employed or subjugated or used to create your life of luxury? And do you remember your purpose for being here with each of those people? Do you actually hear the cries of people anymore? In other words, is your heart tender to the things of God? Are you with the poor? Do you see the poor? Do you see the oppressed and the subjugated? Do you hear the cries of humanity in the world? Or have you insulated yourself so much in your life of luxury that you don't even hear the cry of people anymore? He says, hear and listen. And he continues, look at verses five and six. He says, you've spent your years on earth the years that were given to you. Guys, life is a gift. God gave you the gift of life. And he says, you've spent these years of your life on earth satisfying your every desire. That, dear friends, is the story of the world, verse five. That you've spent your whole life gratifying your own desires. Here's, here's a question for all of us. Now, I'm stepping on my own toes here, okay? When is the last time you denied yourself anything? I mean, really. When is the last time you had a desire and you denied yourself? We live in a world and in a story right now that says you should deny yourself nothing. You deserve it. This is all about you. So get whatever you can from whomever you can, and get as much pleasure out of this life while you can. And James says, wrong. You've spent your entire life satisfying your desires. You fatten yourselves for the day of slaughter. Whoops. And then he says again, right? You've condemned and killed innocent people. Again, the ones who are crying out, who do not resist you. They don't dare resist you because of the power that you have. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 27. Do you remember? It's one of the pivotal verses in the letter that James writes. He says, pure and genuine religion is this, that you look after widows and orphans in their distress. But what does he mean? Orphans and widows in the first century were ones who could do nothing for themselves, who could give you nothing in return for helping them. And James says, if you want to be religious, if, if you want to do something, this is what you should do. You should help people who can't help you. Because when you help people that can't help you, 
that can do nothing for you in, in, in return, you remind yourself that God helped you when you could do nothing in return. You remind yourself of the, everyone watch this. I, I, I love you so much. I want to tell you this. You remind yourself when your heart is tender to the poor, tender to people who can do nothing for you, tender to the innocent, tender for the young and the old who can do nothing for you, when your heart is tender towards them. By the way, it says a lot about your heart the way you treat the young and the, poor, the, the, young and the old in your life. Those who can do nothing for you in return, who don't have a position of power and influence, how we treat the innocent. And I don't think we're doing too well as a culture. The way you treat someone who can do nothing for you says everything about you. Guys and ladies, those of you who are looking for a significant other, pay attention when you're on a date to the way they treat the server, the waitress or the waiter. Pay attention to the way they treat their parents. Pay attention to the way they treat people that, that, that can do nothing for them in return. It says everything about their heart and how they see other people. Because how you see other people is how you see yourself. And how you see yourself is ultimately how you see God. It all reveals the story that you're believing. Let me finish right here. This, this passage, right, from James 4.13, circle it, all the way to James 5.6, right? These verses right here at the end of the letter are written to a broader audience than ju just the church. But James is being prophetic with all people, right, in this portion of the letter in front of the church. Why is he doing that? So that the church can listen in and be warned about believing the wrong story about God and themselves and other people. Believing a consumeristic story. And what's the result of this consumeristic story? It's a greedy heart. It's a lustful heart. It's a consuming heart that just wants to take from other people instead of give. For God so loved the world that he gave. And love always moves us to a posture of giving. Lust, as you've heard me say before, always moves you to a posture of getting. And lust isn't just physical. It's emotional. It's financial. It's relational. It's everything. And a consuming heart. Let me give you three warnings here really quickly as we close. And maybe one of these applications will fit you and where you are right now. Maybe there's something that the Spirit wants to speak into your life today as a warning. A greedy heart creates a focus, number one, on me. The focus of my life is on myself. I believe that I'm the only float in the parade. And I begin to orient all of my life around myself. Secondly, a greedy heart, a heart that is participating in the story of the world. This is a warning. A greedy heart is not ready to be held accountable. The truth is that some of you tuned me out minutes ago. You're, you're, you don't want to be held accountable. And a lack of accountability for every one of us is extremely dangerous. This is why God called us to live in Christian community with one another. That if God is our father, that makes us brothers and sisters, then that makes a difference. And we're meant to live, not just in rows, but in circles, where we can see one another, where we can know one another, where we can be known, where someone can speak into our life, can correct us, can help us, can encourage us, can pray for us, and we can do the same thing for others. And God gave us the gift of Christian community to live in. Life isn't meant to be lived alone. 
There are no lone rangers in this world and in this story. And it's dangerous to be alone. And so God says, find people you can do life with, who can speak into your life. And there's a warning, if nobody can speak into your life, well, let's just ask that question. Who can speak into your life? Who are you listening to? Who could correct you? You see, wealth and planning, the idea that you have all the plans and all the wealth, insulates you, or you think it insulates you from any accountability or anyone speaking into your life. And when someone speaks into your life, you just turn the channel. Someone speaks into your life or whatever, you just go to a different church. Someone speaks into your life, you just go to a different group, right? And we just bounce around from group to group, place to place, wanting to hear the things that we only wanna hear that fit our narrative. And if that were the case, the church would have put this letter down a long time ago. But James loves them enough to speak the truth. And we're meant to do that with one another in community, in love, to help one another, not to hurt each other, to help each other, to restore one another, to help us to live the life that God's called us to. Here's the third one. A warning about a greedy heart. The first is I'm making everything about myself. My focus of my life is on myself. I'm not ready to be held accountable. Here's the third one. I dehumanize other people. I dehumanize others to fulfill my desires. Boy, isn't this happening. I dehumanize people, right? I, I, I make them just a character in my story. That's all they are. They're just a character in my story. And if I don't like who they are or what they're doing or I'm done consuming them, I break up with them. I ghost them. I unfriend them. I cancel them, right? Jesus never canceled you. Jesus could have canceled you. You said a lot of dumb things. Jesus could have canceled you, but he didn't, right? And thank God for that, for all of us. We begin to dehumanize people as a number, as a character, as something just in our own story instead of seeing them as a person made in the image of God, loved by God. And here's the deal. We begin to love our possessions and we possess people. We consume people instead of consuming possessions. And when we get those two things reversed, warning, 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 look here. I'm gonna finish here. If a picture speaks a thousand words, I want you to see Bruggen's uh, work of Lazarus, poor Lazarus and the rich man, and how he depicted the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. So if we could put that up, that'd be great. What do you see in this work? What do you notice? What do you feel? Here's poor Lazarus and the rich man. And what I notice is that the rich man it's actually multiple people who are in the shadows in the background with their fine clothes and fine foods sitting around a table full of wealth. Lazarus is highlighted. And here's the question. Who, who do you feel sorry for in this picture? 
The story of the world says you should feel sorry for Lazarus. But actually, you should be sorry for the man who sits in the shadows, who's in the darkness, whose story is getting darker and darker and darker. And they're eating and drinking and being merry and all the while they're perishing in a false story. So look here, look here, look at your plans, look at your wealth. And look here, look here guys, Jesus has so much bigger and better stories for you to live in than you could ever create for yourself. He came that you would have life and that you would have it overflowing and in abundance. To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you expose us, just as you've done today through the word, would you expose us to the ways in which our hearts are inclined to believe the story of the world rather than your true story? And Jesus, would you show us where our love of money and our love of plans and our dependence on them, our, our focus on keeping them and spending them on ourselves is actually keeping us from experiencing the life of freedom and peace and love that you made for us. Would you uncover the hidden motivations in our hearts even in this moment? Would you uncover the fears and the effects of our disobedience and believing a false story about you and ourselves and others? And would you move us now to use the plans and the wealth, the personalities, the talents, the time, the influence, everything you've given us, would you move us in our hearts to use those to further your story for other people? So give us the wisdom to know what you're speaking to us today and give us the courage to go and obey. In Jesus' name, amen.